so I never met my great grandfather, Paul Anderson. He died um, January 1st, 1970 something. But the only reason I know that is because I was born January 1st, a few years later. And my grandfather said to my father, you know, your grandfather died on this very day. And so I became named for him, Paul Anderson. My great-grandfather, through my father's mother, he was a Methodist pastor and, um, and a womanizer. <laughs> yeah, quite a combo. He, uh, it seems he tried to sleep with every single woman in his church. Um, for some reason, he didn't last very long in ministry. <laughs> um, but then he went on to become, get this, a, an expert in UFOs. Yeah, I can't make this stuff up. I only have one memory of my grandfather. I was three years old. We went to the hospital to visit him. He was dying of pancreatic cancer. And I still remember there. I mean, there was this uh, fountain there, and we saw a rainbow. He was in the wheelchair. That's the only memory I have. But then um, later in life, I learned a lot because the man left quite a wake behind him. He, uh, he was a World War II pilot. He was a good-looking man and a serious fisherman. He had one of those beautiful, like, you know, mid-century, modern, all-wooden boats and, and serious about his fishing, and he, and he had the trophy wife to go with it. My grandmother was quite the looker back in her day. She could have been, like, one of those, like, maiden form brawl models. Not joking. Later, I learned that he was also a workaholic and an empire builder. When he died, he owned half of Richwood, Ohio. Not exaggerating. It's a small town, granted, but still, that's impressive. From what I can piece together, he seemed to treat his sons with almost no affection. Like they were business associates or investment partners or something. On my mother's side, it's just shrouded in darkness. Like darkness of... of what I don't know, and darkness of what I do know. My biological grandfather, I never actually knew him as a grandfather. He uh, was quite the man. He was a bodybuilder. Supposedly, he won Mr. Ohio at some point, so you can see where this comes from. Yeah. But then he got my grandmother pregnant. I don't even think they were married yet. Stole a car, ended up going to prison for several years for grand theft auto. My grandmother then went off, ran to a hardworking, honest man who proceeded to buy a bar, become an alcoholic, get into gambling, and become so abusive that the history just stops from that point. It just stops. My mom, my aunt, my uncle, like nothing, complete and utter darkness. So abuse, alcoholism, divorce, prison, adultery, UFOs. Uh, some severe religion, heroism, big personalities, beauty queens, empire building, bodybuilding. Yeah. When I was young, I had almost no interest in any of this. Uh, I, I didn't see what any of that had to do with me. Huh? But then in my 20s, I started to notice that um, the things that I thought were particular to me, like my passions, my struggles, the way I kept hurting people over and over again and didn't know why, um, they weren't particular to me. My father, my mother, my brother, my cousins, my uncles, they all had similar structures, uh, struggles. And, and I started to see like this pattern emerge. 
And then in my 30s, I could start to see similar patterns in you. It was a lot easier to see in other people than it was to see in myself. But I I would like meet with someone and say like, why in the world are you behaving like this? This doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? This is self-destruction. What are you doing here? And as we would dig into things, almost always the story would come back to some story about their family. Abuse, abandonment, addiction, divorce, expectations, control, something, severe religion, something. And I began to see this pattern that your deep flaws, your core motivations, your secret sins, the thing that you're most passionate about and most afraid of has been deeply formed by your family. So I've, I've never been one of those, like, let's talk about your father wound and cry type of pastors. It's <laughs> not me. But I've always been a student of the scriptures. And as I go through the scriptures, I can't help but notice that God's blessing and our sin seems to echo generation to generation. Like it's everywhere in the Old Testament, um, even in the Ten Commandments. So the second commandment, God describes himself this way um, on the commandment about idolatry. He says he's punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation for those who hate him. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What do you do with that? Over the past 10 years, uh, I've come to realize that my family, what my family's done, what they've experienced, what's been done to them, it matters. Like their blood is coursing through my veins. Their struggles are my struggles. I'm an heir to a set of patterns, habits, attitudes, tragedies, victories that not only shape like my eye color and cholesterol level, but my very soul. Their strengths, wants, struggles, successes, good and bad. They're mine. And even the things I don't know, even the things that are shrouded in dark darkness, even the things that no one has the courage to speak or is even allowed to talk about, I carry those with me too every single day. And that makes me wonder. Do you think the same might be true of you? Now, of course, um, the invitation of Jesus is to a new family. If you place your faith in him, you are adopted as a child, adopted to sonship. We become children of God, which sounds great. We can forget our past and move on. But eventually, if you, if you stick around long enough, you start to discover that Jesus doesn't intend to just cuddle off our past as though it never happened. Instead, he seems to be more interested in like redeeming it. This usually means that at some point, he wants to shine a light on all those things that have been kept in darkness for a reason. At some point, he wants to talk about those things that you've never talked about, never been allowed to talk about. And eventually, if you become familiar enough with the scriptures, you also realize that the family of God, it too has a past. Every bit is like healthy and dysfunctional, exceptional, boring, odd, common, abusive, redemptive, good, bad, broken, whole, as yours, mine. So if you are a child of God, their blood is in your veins. Their struggles are your struggles. You are an heir to a set of patterns, habits, attitudes, tragedies, victories that shape your very soul, mine too. 
to say it this way, um, to come to know the stories of our fathers in the faith, to come to know their stories is to come to know your own story. To shine a light on their sins, their struggles, their faith is to shine a light on yours, on mine. To speak out loud their past is to confess our present. To learn how they walked with God is to learn how we can walk with God. So that's what we're going to do this fall. We are going to look at, just to be clear, a Middle Bronze Age text about like um, a nomadic patriarchal couple who are blessed by God. And you might look at that, and if you read it on your own, you might be like, what in the world? That has nothing to do with me or my life, right? But these aren't just Bronze Age stories, are they? These are the stories of the father of faith, the journey of faith, the family of God. And if you've heard the promises of God, if you're on the journey of faith, if you consider yourself part of the family of God, then this isn't just Abraham's story. It's ours. This is our family history. So this week, we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27. If you want to follow along, I think it's page 9 or 10 in your pew Bible. I would encourage you to look in there and follow the text. There's lots there. Here, we're going to meet a man named Abram, who's later called Abraham, and his wife, Sarai, who's later called Sarah. And we're going to begin to see how his heroic faith and his heroic struggle with sin shapes our present and guides our future. So in order to get there, though, I do want to set some context. So we're going to do a quick overview of like how we got to this point so we're not launching off into nothing. So in Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to cover this in three minutes. Ready? All right. <laughs> Genesis 1, 1, we have in the beginning God. And this here, we immediately discover something about this. This is not, this is much, much bigger than us. This isn't a story of just you or me or creation. This is the story of God. This is God's story. And then in God's story, we can begin to make sense of the story of creation, the story of humanity, your story, my story. So this is the story of God. And in that story, we find the story of humanity. God makes Adam and Eve literally human and living. That's what their names mean. And he places them over a good creation. Literally, he says, tov, tov, good, good creation. It is so good. And then he blesses them famously and says, be fruitful and multiply. And then in chapter two, we see how this begins to unfold, what this blessed life looks like. And it's described famously in chapter two as they are naked and unashamed. There's nothing between them and God, between them and one another, nothing. You can see them fully. They're unashamed. And then later we hear it described this way. I love this language. They, they walk with God in the cool of the evening. They walk with God. But then comes chapter three. Adam, Eve do not believe God's promises. They do not believe what he says. They do not follow his commandment and curse enters into God's good creation. And what does Adam have to say when God confronts him in this? He says this, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. She gave me some fruit and I ate it. I want you to hear there's, um, tuck this away. There's five I statements here that bring us the curse. I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid, I ate. And that begins the history of the curse. In chapter four, we see that Adam has a son named Cain. His name literally in Hebrew means God, God's gift. So he's, Adam's name is human. So Cain is literally God's gift to humanity. 
right? I am that great. I'm God's gift to humanity. Hi. And then he, he, God, though, when they presents his gift to God, God doesn't approve of his gift, but approves of his brothers. And that makes Cain so bitter and angry that God does not value him the way he should be valued, that he kills his brother. And that starts the line of Cain. From the line of Cain, Cain's children, generation after generation, they build on their father's legacy and it becomes worse and worse until we get seven generations from Adam through the line of Cain. And we find seven generations deep through the line of Cain, we get a man named Lamech. And he is the world's first recorded polygamist. And he's bragging about how many people he's killed. But then the chapter ends with a glimmer of hope. Adam has another son, Seth. And it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to worship God again. They began to walk with God again. And seven generations through Seth, from Adam through Seth, we get a man named Enoch who walked with God and then was no more. He walked with God and God saw him as so righteous, so good that he just said, nope, you're not going to die. Be with me. And so we get this other line. We have the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And then we follow this along to 10 generations and we get a man named Noah. Now at this part, humanity has become so cursed, so self-destructive, ruining God's creation, ruining themselves that God unleashes a flood. It's uncreation. No more is he going to bring the order, uh, hold back the the chaos anymore. He's going to let it go and let you receive your own chaos and the floodwaters rush in. But through Noah and his family, God will make a new or renewed creation. Noah becomes a second Adam, if you will. But if you know the story, they step off the boat and this second creation doesn't go much better than the first. In a bizarre story that I'm not sure I can fully put all the pieces together about nakedness and drunkenness and almost certainly incest is involved in this. Noah comes out of a drunken, naked stupor and we discover that the curse is still very much at work. And Noah comes up and then curses, not his son who offends him, but he curses his son's son, Canaan. So he says, cursed be Canaan. This is a generational curse. So Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's through Ham that we have Canaan and the curse of Canaan then begins. Then in chapter 10, Noah has another son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is now going to start a new family line that's going to once again walk with God, hear that language, and call him the name of the Lord, which is not entirely surprising if you know Hebrew because Shem in Hebrew means name. Yeah, there you go. So men begin to call on the Shem of the Lord under Shem. But then we get to chapter 10, and humanity itself is again coming apart at the seams. They seek to find their unity, security, prosperity, peace without God. So they build this giant tower, and they said, we're going to do what God God wants to do, but we're going to do it on our own terms. We're going to make a shim for ourselves. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. And they try to do that at the Tower of Babel, but God confuses their language, scatters them. And this brings us to our text. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice here, if you go Noah through the line of Shem, 10 generations deep, we run into this guy named Abram. So 10 generations from Adam to Noah, second creation, second Adam, something huge happens there. And then 10 generations from Noah to Abram, we're expecting something new, the start of a a new creation, maybe. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27. 
This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. So traditionally, Ur of the Chaldeans is here, um, far southern modern-day Iraq. Um, there, in fact, if you go there today, there is a reconstructed, partially reconstructed, reconstructed the great ziggurat of Ur, which is almost certainly what the Tower of Babel would have looked like back in the day. This is from the time of Abram. Now, having said that, there is some debate over whether that's actually Ur of the Chaldeans or whether that should be in northern Iraq. All that to say, when the original audience heard this, though, it sounded like long, long, far, far away in a land long, long ago. This is as foreign and bizarre and as exotic as you can get. And in that land far, far away, Haran died. So this this is um, what's well, sad for a father to bury his own son. But it's not particularly surprising. Back then, life was very, very hard. Abram and Nahor both married. The father of uh, the name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. In the Hebrew, there's no word because there. It's just these two phrases back to back. Literally, Sarai was barren. She was not able to conceive. Now, this, this is surprising. If you've been reading through the story of Genesis, this is the first time uh, in the history of the world that God's blessing seems to come to a halt the, the brief, fruitful, and multiply suddenly is frozen. And the Hebrew scholar Bill Arnold points out that this doubling of phrases, this is a very Hebrew way of emphasizing a point. So um, creation is not just tov. It's not just good. It's good, good. And, and if you eat of that tree, you won't just die. You will die, die. And here we come to the doubling. She was barren. She, she couldn't have any kids. So anyone who has gone through infertility or is walking with someone or has walked with someone who's gone through infertility knows that this can be devastating, life-altering, dream-crushing. In Abraham's day, it's, it's really hard to overstate how dire this would be for them. To be infertile in that culture was to be alive, to be like breathing, walking, working, doing all your normal stuff, but, but with no purpose, no hope no future, no reason to go on. It, it was complete and utter desperation. It's, it's the problem that you cannot solve. It's the barrier that you cannot overcome no matter how hard you try. It's no, nothing you can do can fix it. And this, this is where the story of faith begins. This is where the journey of faith begins. Do you hear that? This, this is where God begins. It begins in barrenness in powerlessness and hopelessness and desperation. There is nothing Abram and Sarai can do. They're alive, but to quote the Apostle Paul, they're as good as dead. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, to the promised land. Of course, it wasn't promised yet. But they, but they came to Haran. They settled there. Terah lived 205 years 
he died in Haran. So again, here's the map. If they did live, or the Chaldeans was in the far south, this is a long, long journey just to Haran. 241 hours of walking, according to Google. That's a long ways. Now, we can ask lots of questions about this text, like why did Terah set out for Canaan? Don't know. Why did he stop at Haran? Doesn't say. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great blessing, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And with that, with that line right there, the story of Genesis takes a massive turn, a massive pivot. The story of God takes a massive turn. It goes from the history of humanity, all of humanity, humankind, to the story of like one man, one family, one people. It goes from the story of curse, 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 to the story of blessing. In fact, uh, if you go through Genesis chapter 3 through 11, you will see the word curse mentioned five times, five times. And then in this one little short passage in God's promise, he says, I will bless you, blessing, bless, 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 five times. It's almost as though, it's almost as though God is saying that somehow I'm, what I'm up to right now, I'm planning to undo all that the curse has done. Like, I'm going to undo everything that you've done to yourself, all the things that you think can't be undone somehow through my promise I'm going to undo that. But how? How could God possibly undo what we've done to ourselves? And it has something to do, all the only clue we get is this line. The Lord said to Abraham that the work of the Lord is accomplished through his word. He speaks. Genesis 1, he speaks everything into existence. He speaks things into existence. Here he speaks a new future, a new identity, a new reality, a new people into existence. In fact, the Apostle Paul, speaking of this very passage, says in Romans chapter 4, God calls things that are not as though they are. He calls things that are not as though they are. He speaks them and he speaks your reality into existence through his promise. Now, creating something out of nothing or creating a great nation out of an infertile couple, both are impossible. Both are incredible, and both are accomplished when God speaks. So I just want you to note, this is how the journey of faith begins. This is how the family of God begins. This is how life with God begins. This, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of God, this is how it begins for you. You, God speaks. Christ died for you and rose again from the dead. He is now the exalted king of the universe and you hear and believe, and that's it. That's how you're made alive in Christ. That's how the journey of faith begins. That's how you become a child of God. He speaks, and you believe. So God, he finds this man, Abram, and his wife, Sarah, in complete and utter desperation, and he speaks over them, you, I'm calling you, through you, I'm going, I'm going to bless you, bless you, bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. I'm going to undo the curse through you. But notice, um, that's not what God leads with here. He doesn't start with blessing. He begins with the word go. 
as in forsake everything, uh, your country, your people, your father's household. And almost as if to just make it harder, he says, go to the land that I will show you. As in, um, I'm not going to show you until you first start walking. Like, I'm not going to tell you until you obey. I'm not going to give you anything to cling to except my promise until you believe me. The reformer, um, not Martin Luther, John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis, he famously paraphrases this same saying like this. He says, I command you to go with closed eyes and forbid you to ask where I'm about to lead you until you've renounced your home and giving yourself wholly to me. Give up everything, let go of everything, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go. Do that first with closed eyes. And this this is... um, this helps illustrate what is sometimes called, has been called by a number of theologians, the terrible dilemma of faith. Here's the question. Here's the question. Do I stay where things feel safe and live in barrenness? Do I stay where I feel like I'm in control without hope? Or, or do I risk everything? Do I leave everything? Do I go on this risky venture, let go of all control in my life, but receive the promise of hope? It, it's a dilemma. I mean, obviously staying is terrible, but it feels safe. It feels like you're still in control, even if you're hopeless. But leaving, leaving is risky and uncomfortable, and it means giving up control. And what proof do you have that it's going to work out anyways? So my best friend in high school was a man named Steve, boy at the time. And uh, we were quite different, but really connected. He was, um, he was not a moral man or a religious man. In fact, there's a line in Genesis chapter 16 where God describes uh, Ishmael as a wild ass of a man. That pretty much summarizes Steve, and I loved him. All right, I loved him. We we were best friends. After high school, I go off to college, and and Jesus just wrecks my life. I mean, I got to know him for the first time, and I was just like so passionate, sharing the gospel with everyone, just skipping classes to read the Psalms. Like I was so moved by Jesus and so radically shaped that I was like, I have to tell Steve about this. So I come home on a break and sit down with uh, Steve, and we meet up at our favorite Denny's. We eat like one of those dishes where you have like 10 different plates. It's awesome. Gluttony. American tradition. I love it. And so we're sitting there and, uh, and I start, Steve, how are you? I've, I've been meaning to talk to you. And, um, and Steve's life at that point is awful. He's doing drugs. He's living with a girl, sleeping with a girl that he does not even like. And he just hates his life. And at one point, he actually leans over the table and says to me, Paul, the only thing that stops me from hanging myself by a rope in my parents' barn is the thought of what it would do to my dad. And my heart breaks for Steve. And I start saying, Steve, you don't have to live like this. Jesus loves you. There is purpose. There is meaning. He wants to forgive you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to call you into something great. Like you can leave behind that life and take up a new life. All you got to do is let go and trust him. He has something planned for you. You don't have to live like this anymore. You can let it go. And to my 
horror. My confusion. Steve said no. Like he, he would figure this out on his own. He was not ready to give up control. He, he wasn't ready to walk away from the life that he hated. Like I said, it's a terrible dilemma. And I know some of you feel stuck right there, right now. Like you really want proof that God is going to, following God is really going to work out. But before, before God gives you any evidence or proof, all he gives you is a promise. I will bless you. I get it. I'm, I'm sympathetic. I really am. I'm letting go of control feels so terribly unsafe. I can understand why Abram might say no. I can understand why Steve did say no. It sounds terrifying. In fact, the only thing worse than stepping out like that and taking that huge risk is to not. You don't have to live like this. You can leave that faith, that, that life behind. There is a new life offered to you. It's promised. And no one's going to force you. You got to take that step. So when God calls Abram to step out in faith, the only thing, and I mean the only thing that Abram has to cling to is the promise of God. But it is quite a promise. Listen to this. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. That, that barrenness, doesn't hold me back. God says, doesn't hold me back. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. You know, those people in, in Babel, they tried to build a tower and make their own name great and that didn't work out. But I, I have the power to give you a great name. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. The curse it still work. It's still work in our world. But that's not your story. That's not going to define you. That's not going to set your future. Your future is now set with me. And your future is going to be defined by blessing. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Which is to say that this promise to Abraham includes you and me. This is for us. That's, that's us. We're all the peoples of the earth. That we find ourselves wrapped up in the same call of God, the same mission, the same blessing through the promise made to Abram. Now, there's a lot, lot more to say about this text, but God is actually going to circle back to this promise multiple times in the story of Abram. So for now, I just want you to notice a repetition here. As you look through this, you're going to find um, these statements again and again. I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will curse. I will. I will. I will. I will. Five times. It's almost like um, in the same way that there were five I statements that led into the curse through Adam, God is now going to speak five words to undo the curse, to create a new history of blessing. So what will Abram do? All he has is this promise to cling to. And we don't know yet. This doesn't say anything about what he'll do. The promise is entirely based on what God will do. Upon the promise of God, Abram has to decide, do I stay safe and be hopeless? Or do I believe God's word, risk everything, 
with hope. So Abraham, Abram went. And those three words, that will change the trajectory of not only Abram's life, but the course of history. From that point on, he will be on a journey. He'll spend the rest of his life pursuing the promised land. And the words of the author of Hebrew, he'll be looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. The rest of his life is a journey seeking after God. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years, 75 years old when he set out for Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions he had accumulated and the peoples he had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Again, here's the map. He goes from up north Haran all the way down into the land of Canaan. Not a short walk, 178 hours this time, according to Google. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, which can't be sure, but traditionally, that's the great tree of Morah. Yeah, 1912, there's a picture of it. Here's one more recently, 2008. In 2019, it actually fell over, but there's a shoot coming up out of the stump. Kind of a biblical image there. Reportedly, the tree is more than 5,000 years old, which means it could be the very tree. Um, The word mora in Hebrew means teacher. So this tree or one like it was likely a site of, of pagan worship at the time. This is where they came together. The Canaanites came and they worshiped and there was teaching from their gods. It was an important landmark in their day. And then we read, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So get this. He comes into this land, arrives at this pagan site and notices, hey, there's Canaanites crawling all over. Uh, Canaanites, as in the, um, the children of Noah's cursed grandson, Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. That's who's there. And then at that site, at that time, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. To which he said, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure about this? Lord, did you, did you happen to notice there's already people here? These people already have their gods. They seem to be quite happy about it. But, but Abram, he actually doesn't say that. He doesn't complain. He doesn't doubt. He just does this. So he built an altar to, there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He sets up an altar, a symbol of God's, pre- of God's promise. God has promised to give me this land. So here's a, here's a symbol. Here's a physical symbol of God's promise that I can remember by faith and see that. I can say, that's, God, that's where God promised this to me. And then from there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel. Bethel literally means house of God, almost certainly another sacred pagan site, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord again. Then Abram set out to continue toward the Negev, which would be in the south. So the expert in ancient Hebrew literature, Robert Alter, helpfully translates this very verse like this. He says, Abram journeyed onward by stages toward the Negev. And this this seems to be the point of this text, Um, not so much the geography that he went from Shechem to Bethel, and there's Ai over there, and then he's going to head down to the Negev, but it seems to have a bigger point. Um, Walter Brugman, a famous Old Testament scholar, puts it this way, though the broad outline of the geography is to be accepted, the reference to sojourning should not 
be understood simply as physical movement. That the point is not so much geography, but the point is to show you what it looks like to follow God. Or to say it a little more bluntly, the journey of faith is walked in stages. That is what we're seeing in Abraham. So this metaphor of, of following God, of walking with God, of going on a journey, this starts all the way at the beginning, right? They walked with God in the cool of the evening. And then Israel, when they get saved, when they get saved out of Egypt, out of slavery, what does God do? He takes them on a long journey. He leads them through the wilderness for a very, very long time into the promised land. Jesus, what's his invitation to his disciples and to us? Follow me. I am the way. Walk as I walked. And anyone who's, who's walked some of that journey, been on this journey, knows that, that this happens in stages. Earlier this summer, we had a um, college student visit, young man who grew up in our church and came back just for a visit. And we're talking, and it was so exciting because God's clearly grabbed a hold of this guy, and he's, he's just wrecked by it. He's just so excited about everything, and he stopped to tell me, hey, you know, we learned this new thing. You've probably never heard of it. He's like, you know, if, if one person who follows Jesus is a disciple of Jesus, if they tell two people and help make them followers of Jesus, disciples, then those people tell people, you can start a whole movement. In fact, there's this thing where you glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. And I was like, wow, did you you just make that up? That's amazing. Didn't have a heart to tell them that's our mission statement. And then I've been preaching that over him for like 18 years. Yeah, yeah. But I loved it because that's where he was at. Like he had met Jesus, he had smashed into his life, and suddenly his eyes were open to things that had been there the whole time, but now he's seeing them for the first time. Now that, that stage, I love that stage, that excitement, that passion, that fervor. But if in 10 years I come back and meet him and he's still thinking that he just invented that, something's wrong. He hasn't made progress, right? You see, um, some people think that that's the pinnacle, the excitement, the fervor, the passion, the way some people like idealize, like love at first sight, like that's the thing that you always seek as though that's the pinnacle of love. No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, it's good. That's a good starting point. But if the only reason you love me is because of how smashingly beautiful I am when you first look at me, that's meaningless. I don't want that. I want someone to look at me at my worst. I want them to know my sin and then love me. That's significant. That's meaningful. And that love for Jesus, for your spouse, that love needs to be worked out over time. It needs to be tested and tried. You you need to go through some hard things. You, You need to go through some dry times. You need to learn things about yourself and about the one that you love. You need to grow and be transformed and purified. You need to learn what it means to love when it's costly, when it's hard, when you don't feel like it. And this, this is a journey that happens in stages It takes a long, long time. So, do you know what stage you're in? Do you have enough sense of yourself or the journey that you can actually start to position yourself and say, huh, man, this is where I'm at. These are the dangers I'm facing. This is the terrain in my life. These are the joys and and the, the struggles of someone in my stage. Do you know the signs of when you're coming to the end of one stage and beginning a new one? 
If not, maybe there's some questions you should ask. Now, we could stop here, and maybe we should. At this point, Abram looks heroic. Uh, He has this radical faith. He steps out. He just gets the promise of God, and he believes, and he goes. He radically leaves everything, forsaking all things, follows God into the unknown. And his faith is enough to inspire or, and me, actually shame me. But the story, um, it doesn't end here. The, The chapter keeps going. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. He, he just went. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but let you live. Now, this, this thing, um, Abram's clearly very worried. He's like, you know how those Egyptian scoundrels are. They're going to see how stunningly beautiful you are, and they are going to kill me and take you, which sounds odd because Sarah's 65 at the time, and it sounds fearful, and it sounds selfish, and it sounds like Abram, the hero of the faith, is way more concerned with saving himself than what happens to his wife. Say you are my sister so that it will be, I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Now, later we're going to learn that this is a half-truth. There's, there's a half-truth there. There's some, but, but no, Abram's asking his wife to lie in order to protect himself. That's what is happening here. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was very beautiful. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. His plan works. He gets paid for his sister. This is how he acquires the sheep and cattle and donkeys. He he just sold his wife. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases, literally plagues, on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Now, on a literary and theological level, this is beautiful. I mean, did you see this? Pharaoh, the pagan king, just became an instrument of God's blessing. Did you see that? So Pharaoh, he unintentionally, not only does he bless Abram, but he speaks God's word to Abram. That his word, when he says to him, go, take your wife, that it is actually the exact same phrase that God said to Abram in Genesis 12, 1. When God said, go to the land that I will show you, Pharaoh is just repeating the very word of God. And, um, and it doesn't just look back. This actually looks forward. This scene foreshadows what God will do for the people of Israel in the Exodus. I don't know if you remember the story, but um, a famine will lead them to Egypt. God will send plagues on Pharaoh. Pharaoh will tell them, go, and they will take with them the riches of Egypt. So on that level, on this like theological literary level, this is quite beautiful. But on the relational moral level, 
This is quite disgusting. This is heroically selfish and heroically sinful and heroically wrong. In case you missed the meaning of the line, I took her to be my wife, um, the Semitic scholar Victor Hamill explains, this is doubtless a case of actual adultery between Pharaoh and Sarai. Sarah, Sarai is not only asked to engage in deception, but in the process she becomes vulnerable and is eventually forced into cohabitating with one other than her husband. Which is to say, Abram didn't just lie. He prostituted his own wife in order to protect himself, in order to get rich. Now, what is God going to do to such a person? What would God do to such a reprehensible, evil, like terrible, repulsive, sinful person? And the answer is, he blesses him. You're like, why? Why would God do such a, why would God bless a sinner like this? Because he said he would. He promised, I will bless you. 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 And this is why the Apostle Paul sees this text and describes this as the gospel in advance in Galatians chapter 3. This is why in Romans chapter 4, the, the Apostle Paul says, Abraham, he's your father. He's the father of all who come to God by faith. He proves that you do not earn your position with God. We receive it only by faith because God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. This is not just Abraham's story. This is the story of every man, woman, and child who hear the promises of God and believe. If you hear and believe, you are Abraham's offspring. He is your father. If you are walking the journey of faith, you are a child of Abraham. And can I tell you something? You're just like your father. You are just like your father. And I mean that in the best way possible. <laughs> if, if you believe, if you have faith like Abraham, if you believe the promises of God that Jesus, the promised son of Abraham, died for your sins, rose again, and then you are called to follow him, you are blessed. No matter what, you are blessed. You are a child of God. You are loved by God. He, your future will not be defined by curse. It will be defined by God's blessing, period. Full stop. Has nothing to do with what you do. But... It's also true that you are just like your father Abraham. Still bent in on yourself, still broken, still in need of so much change. It's both. The good news, the gospel, is that you don't have to qualify for the promise. All you have to do is step out in faith and God says he will transform you along the way. And that, that's a life of hope. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, those who are struggling right now at the terrible dilemma of faith of whether to follow you or not, whether it's the first time or whether it's the hundredth time they've heard your call, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would do what only you can do. Give them the faith to believe. 
to step out, to take the risk, to make the decision, to make the choice, to choose you and a life of faith as opposed to living in the life that they know where that leads. They know the barrenness that they're living in. Lord, I pray that they would leave that behind, forsaking all others and choose you. God, you are a great reward. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.